0: I'm Sarah Danu, host of Contrapreneur, where we share the stories of leaders and thinkers who are successfully involved in businesses that have a positive impact in the world. Our inspiring guests will empower you, whether to start a business of your own or to make changes where you are. We'll learn about the current state of impact businesses and their interconnection with them. A Contrapreneur is everything an entrepreneur is and a bit more. Contrapreneurs are running businesses for financial profitability, but not at a cost to the environment or people they do business with. We'll talk with entrepreneurs about what sparked them to do what they do, learn about their day-to-day, and talk tips about getting where you want to go. We'll share our lessons learned and look at the changes businesses need to make to create a sustainable and just future. Subscribe here to Contrepreneur and you'll get the episodes as soon as they come out. Meet Brandon Russ, founder of Conserva Collective, a Baja Mexico-based company producing everything from soaps to fertilizer, all centered around the sustainable usage of seaweed. Brandon's story starts with being dropped off in a remote Baja Mexico fishing community and asking people if he could live with them. He was so inspired by what he partook in there, he headed back to grad school with a new direction. After grad school, he moved back to Mexico and founded his company, Conserva Collective. Conserva makes everything from soaps to fertilizer all revolving around seaweed. Brandon puts sustainable resource management and community at the forefront of his business and is working to educate and give back in big ways. I was excited to speak with somebody starting a business in Mexico, although Brandon is American, to learn about differences. I hope this is just the start of Contrepreneur bringing diverse voices of entrepreneurship to the bigger conversation of using business as a tool for good. Just a heads up, some construction started nearby during the middle of this interview. Sorry for the extra noises. It's still totally worth listening to. Construction is a part of life, and we're just rolling with it. Thanks for rolling with us. Thanks so much for being here with me. Let's set the scene for people. We're at Acre, a restaurant surrounded by a farm which sources ingredients from their own land and has an old-growth mango orchard on the property. We're in a treehouse, which um, guests can rent out to sleep in, uh, but we're currently using as our recording studio. And you work here as well as running Conserva Collective.
1: Yeah, so I grew up coming down to Baja since I was a little kid. And I first moved here after I graduated college four years ago, which is where the idea for Conserva Collective was conceived. And then I've been here full time since last March. We're now in November, so it's been the better part of the year. And I relocated here to Acre in September. So the premise of me being here is to get guests and travelers aware and engaged with all the really interesting things going on in Baja, whether that is travel, sustainability, or just kind of an overall understanding of the Baja Peninsula.
0: So do the people at Acre want you to call it Acre or Acre? Because the people in town are saying Acre.
1: So in Spanish it's pronounced Acre. I go back and forth. Acre okay. would be better, though, actually.
0: When you were coming down here as a kid, was that for vacations? Or- exactly.
1: So my dad started coming here in the early 80s and brought me down here for the first time when I was five to go fishing. So I grew up going fishing every June in Cabo. And then as I started getting older, so in the late 90s, early 2000s, really noticed how much it was developing. And being a little kid. On a boat, snorkeling, that's where a lot of my passion for marine biology was developed. So then to have this dichotomy of coming down here and associating it with being far away, being somewhere exotic, and being in the ocean, to then seeing it be converted into a place more similar to where I'm from. A lot of Americans, tourism, a lot of industrialized development, Walmart's big hotels. So this was really the first place where I got a sense of not only an appreciation for the ocean, but an understanding of what can happen when we don't really put in an effort to, to conserve it or to appreciate it.
0: Okay. So you're working with the ocean as a kid from a point of exploring it and finding pleasure, finding food in it. And then you went to college in North Carolina. At Wake Forest, and then somewhere else, and then a bunch of other countries. All over the place. Okay.
1: So, I've always wanted to be a marine biologist since I was a little kid. That was my passion forever. And then when I went to school, I studied abroad in Argentina. South America was the first place where I was really able to identify with differences in socioeconomic class. I'm um, really able to identify how fortunate we are coming from the United States, especially where I come from in Southern California. From then until now, it was really interesting to me traveling to see how other people live and how other people rely on their resources and how us as Americans have a skewed perspective of all of that. So for me, combining marine biology and conservation with actually understanding the needs of the people that became the most interesting component of all of it. I mean, over a billion people rely on seafood as their primary source of protein and over a billion people rely on fishing as their source of income for their families. So it's a huge global economy and nutritional component that really makes up humanity that I think so many people are disconnected with. So for me, the origin of this project was really to kind of utilize it as an opportunity to not only work with these communities and the environment, but to also utilize it as a catalyst to show people that there is so much more that we don't see for where our seafood comes from, or why fish cost a certain amount of money, or why we have illegal immigration, why we have, you know, certain communities in Latin America that can't support themselves anymore. So there's a lot of anthropogenic, economic, and societal influences that play in marine biology that to me are really interesting.
0: Can you tell me about that? for the local region in the Sea of Cortez and and maybe how that's changed a little bit over the years? Totally.
1: So the Sea of Cortez uh, was named by Jacques Cousteau as the world's aquarium. It is one of the most biodiverse regions in the entire world in terms of marine productivity. We have whale sharks here. We have tons of islands, migratory fish, reefs, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's spectacular. and because of the politics of Mexico, there's been a lot of over-exploitation of fisheries. So if you go even here in Los Cabos, but up in the Sea of Cortez, you'll see a lot of commercialized fishing boats from Taiwan, Japan, other countries in Latin America, the United States, because there's so much money in this industry that the government essentially has to allow it to happen in order to get the to financial stability. And on top of that, it's very expensive to regulate this. The Sea of Cortez, for the most part, has been this open area for for fisheries to come and just exploit everything. On top of that, you have these extremely impoverished artisanal fishermen which live in these very remote communities. The one in particular that I've aligned myself with is three hours on a dirt road through the mountains from the nearest highway. There's no running water. There's no electricity. Very primitive. And their entire livelihood is dependent on handline fishing. So when I graduated college, instead of getting a job...
0: You got dropped off from the sea.
1: So I got dropped off. I flew into Loretto. The family friend picked me up. Drove me down to the community and dropped me off. Took me to two houses, both of whom rejected me. And the third house that he took me to was... He just
0: went and said, can I live with you guys for a little while? Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay.
1: Uh-huh. Um, so I literally had my one suitcase and stayed with this lady and her husband named Emma and Poncho.
0: Why did you want to go there in the first place? What was your draw?
1: So I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer growing up. That was like the specific job title that I wanted. Uh And then in college in addition to studying marine biology, I studied anthropology, so environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the studies were about how to be a field scientist, how to assimilate into a community, how to be accepted in order to really get the information that you need as a scientist or Uh to capture the photographs of what life really is like. So Mm -hmm. similar to Jane Goodall Mm -hmm. with the Mm -hmm chimpanzees in Africa. I wanted to go and be accepted in this community of fishermen so that I can go out fishing and get a sense of what it was like.
0: So you live with this community for a month and you're spending a lot of time with the women. Do you want to go out fishing on the boots and you're not able to? Or? So
1: that was really my, I have to say, top five most proud moments in my life. Me being a gringo, me being a male, Entering this community where I had no idea how the dynamic of it worked. I had to be very respectful of my place. I was very much a foreigner in a Mm -hmm. place where foreigners don't really go to. Mm -hmm. So it took about three weeks for the men to warm up to me to a point where I was invited out to go fishing.
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: So I went out fishing and... The entire night was essentially spent with these men on this ponga while they're handline fishing in the middle of nowhere under the Milky Way. And they're telling me fishing stories, stories of them trying to get into the United States, of them Mm. getting deported, of really intimate family and personal anecdotes that to me was so inspiring to be a part of. I mean, I was this random gringo who come to this community without a plan. I didn't have anything to provide or offer them, and they accepted me.
0: When did you become fluent in Spanish?
1: I had gone to school for a semester in Argentina.
0: And that was a big so, help in yeah, Spanish. Definitely. Okay. And that's the community that you're still working with to harvest mm. seaweed exactly. to this day.
1: One of the conversations that resonated with me most was there's an older lady who had just come back from town, Ciudad Constitución, to a doctor's appointment, She was diagnosed with diabetes. Came back to Algo Verde. She was extremely upset and was given a a list of parameters of how to alter overall lifestyle. You can't have flour tortillas with every meal that you have Mm -hmm. or refried beans don't count as a vegetable. Mm -hmm. You have to start incorporating roughage. You have to exercise. To us, it's it's Mm -hmm. common knowledge. We take it for granted. But for this community, it was pretty profound. And she was extremely upset. And me just... Partly practicing my Spanish, partly trying to be engaged in conversation, was trying to highlight solutions. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You could walk around the neighborhood for exercise. You could go to town to get produce, start a co-op where the women pool money together and, you know, figure it out what we think is relatively basic. And this poor woman was essentially thought that her life was over. So fast forward two years later. I'd gone to grad school in Miami for this, essentially for this community. But I came back. What did you study? I studied aquaculture production and fisheries management.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So fisheries and fishermen was my area of studies. Came back to this community, and this same woman greeted me, eating a tomato like it was an apple, gave me the biggest hug started tearing up saying miho you, you saved us uh-huh. i was like what do you mean and she showed me that all the women had built a community garden wow after the conversation and they've all allocated their they have a well that they have through gravity irrigation uh-huh. a hose, right uh-huh. so they all utilize their various rations of water to make this garden they're growing kale amazing yeah it was one of the most heartfelt moments wow in my entire life uh-huh. so yeah. that was really Ew. the reaffirmation I was like oh my god
0: had you been able to stay in touch with them while you were at Miami for school or not not at all because really? yeah no communication whatsoever communication. yeah can you give me a, the time frame so you started this project about four years ago so
1: I graduated college 2014 in May
2: mm-hmm.
1: I relocated to this community in August mm-hmm. and then from there I went down to La Paz mm-hmm. for 4 months where I worked construction on an aquaculture operation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then while I was there I got accepted to Miami grad school so mm-hmm. I went to Miami in January which takes us to 2016 I think and then I was in, and then I was in Cuba for a year okay and then I was in L.A. for a year and then came back to Mexico 2018 in March. Okay. So what we're doing is literally as the seaweed washes up on the beaches, we're collecting
2: it. Okay. So
1: we're just collecting seaweed as it washes up before Uh it actually gets to the beach and dries out and becomes Uh rotten. So it's still fresh, but we're never removing anything from the rocks, so we're not tampering with any marine environment. Or just collecting what would otherwise be trash
0: is this the job of the women in the community or the job of the men or just whoever wants to so at this
1: point because we're still in the introductory stages of it Uh i have done a lot of it i have done it with some of the women there um i have done it with some travelers who've come down and expressed interest to participate Uh and i've done it with a few um classes of students cool as well
0: what types of seaweed are you picking up
1: so the seaweed that we're collecting is Sargasm. Sargasm. So just a little bit of background about Sargasm. It's a brown algae. Uh-huh. It's one of the most uh, common seaweeds found throughout the world. And it's actually become so prevalent in a lot of areas that it's become extremely invasive. Uh-huh. So in areas such as the Yucatan, and a lot of the Caribbean, and in Southern California, where I'm from as well, uh-huh. it's so prolific that it's washing up on the beaches and in the Caribbean, sea turtles aren't able to nest because they aren't able to dig through the algae, Um, or if they are and then the algae, the sargasm washes up, the sea turtles aren't able to get out of the nest. Mm -hmm. so there's definitely a global understanding that this is something that needs to be addressed.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Just a 10 second break here to thank my supporters. This podcast is 100% funded by your donations, and I hope to keep it that way. It costs money to produce and professionally edit Contrapreneur. If you are willing and able, there are several ways you can donate. Binmo me at Contrapreneur or go to the website to learn a couple other ways to donate. Every dollar helps. Really, it's Contrapreneurship.com slash donate. All right, thanks. Back to the main event. When did you make your first soap?
1: So the soap that I use actually comes from... A pre-existing artisanal soap company here in Los Cabos okay. and the lady who started that is another American who came down here 30 years ago to serve.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Started the soap company using all locally harvested botanicals on the East Cape where she lives. She now has two women here in San Jose, two sisters, a little fabrica which is a factory, mm-hmm. She's been making the soaps for, like I said, the last 25 years. I've aligned myself with her so that together we have created our own subcategory of soaps that incorporate the seaweed or sand or Uh other marine Uh ingredients. I met her last November 2017, and we started our first line of soaps in May
0: May. of this year. Okay, so pretty recent.
1: So very recent.
0: Yeah, and have you done any um fertilizer applications yet or i know you have so some my thesis work
1: my thesis work yeah. was collecting the seaweed in california and making fertilizer so okay. i did that there and then my role here at acre is going to allow me to do that here as well
0: okay yeah what is your role here at acre
1: currently i'm a property host okay so a lot of
0: cats.
1: A lot of hats Literally. so I am exactly I am an expert <laughs> of the property um, uh-huh. and as I shared with you yesterday my role is going to shift to be more specific towards biology uh-huh. so I will be in charge of taking people out on excursions to other areas of the Baja Peninsula uh-huh. up to Isla Espiritu Santo and La Paz and to get people engaged with the conservation initiatives here in Baja as well on property.
2: Okay, cool.
1: So it will be a regular compost incorporating all kinds of plant-based scraps. Uh-huh. I believe we're going to be doing two different kinds, one that will be entirely plant-based and one that will incorporate the okay. poop from the goats and the donkeys as well. Uh-huh. Um, and then in terms of what we need to do with the seaweed is we need to wash it to get as much of the sulfates out as possible so that it doesn't dry out the soil.
0: Washing with water? With salt water, or excuse yeah, me, fresh water. water. Okay.
1: And yeah, that's it. And then you mix it in with the
0: green waste from the restaurant and any pruning landscape work that happens all in the same pile. And it ferments as a compost pile does, Mm -hmm. and then you spread it on the crops. Exactly. Seaweed exists in the coldest climates as well, so the implications of this project worldwide
1: and that's exactly why I had the interest to make this company because it's essentially allowing itself to serve as a prototype for Mm -hmm. projects anywhere
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: mean even with this particular kind of seaweed Mm
0: -hmm. So you're funding it you mentioned you might want investors what's the story there
1: so up until now it has been it has been all me Uh Um, which is why it's been a little bit longer of a process to get together Part because of that and part because of being in a place that is so nearby such extensive development. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of skepticism of an American coming down to Mm -hmm. want to work in a way that is maintaining integrity of the actual concept of this company. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that goes back to a lot of why I wanted to spend time in Agua Verde is I wanted to
2: prove
1: mostly to myself that... The constructs of identity are manufactured. So for me, a lot of what this project has been about is trying to transcend that block Mm -hmm. that Americans are arrogant and that Mexico is a place that is only catered to mass Mm -hmm. tourism.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Really what I would love to see happen with Conserva Collective is that it is A tool for people who otherwise wouldn't be exposed to the extremes Mm -hmm. be it you know the the tourist demographic in Southern California and then the very isolated fishing communities in Mexico Uh utilize conservative collective as a way to bridge that gap Uh because at the end of the day we all depend on the ocean we all should respect and appreciate our environment we all eat seafood And we are all humans. We are all living on this planet. And it is all interconnected.
0: What is your long-term vision for Conserva collective?
1: So, throughout my time here in Baja, I've aligned myself with various researchers and institutions in La Paz. Mm -hmm. There's a field site there. That's where the students have gone. My long-term vision is, first off, my heart is in Agua Verde in terms of that is Community that inspired Conservative Collective.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And currently, they only have one schoolhouse. Mm-hmm. So the kids there are only able to go to school roughly three to four hours a day so that they can alternate. So they have the younger mm-hmm. kids in the morning, the older kids in the afternoon. So huh. there's not a real formal education there right now. I would absolutely love to see the funds or any kind of traction from Conserva collective allow us to build a multifunctional space that would serve as an alternative classroom
2: mm-hmm.
1: area where we can have lectures where we can have people stay where we can have students come and hang out where it will be an academic environment where we can house the seaweed dry the seaweed have experimental plots where we can grow crops so that mm-hmm. we can learn about nutrition and all of that in one in addition to that, because this particular seaweed is so widespread throughout the world, it would be a dream to see what I'm working towards in Algo Verde be replicated in various areas throughout the world.
0: Uh-huh. How has the business side of things been for you?
1: <laughs> so, I am not a business person. I am a scientist. I always... I'm very tactile. Uh-huh. I love creating things, which is why I wanted to So I wanted... Mm-hmm a tangible product from my work Mm -hmm. and i i am a very independent person i've learned that i definitely prefer operating how i operate as opposed to under the constructs of you know having a boss Uh so it's kind of just evolved into this business endeavor without intending it to be so. And Uh now that I am, you know, the founder of a business, it's an entirely different game that I'm playing
2: right Uh now. So
1: finance is come into play, contracts, legalities, all of that. So I am definitely learning as we go.
0: What do you think would be different that you're starting this in Mexico than if you were to start it in Southern California where you're from in terms of the business side of starting a a business?
1: Great question. So the business technically is registered in the States okay. still. Yeah. But first off, so my thesis work was investigating the economic viability of collecting sargasm in California. Mm-hmm. Essentially, my entire research was just all the regulations that you'd have to abide by, mm-hmm. basically prohibiting you to do anything, uh-huh. even though it's invasive and it's ruining our environment because there's so many restrictions for humans to do anything. You can't. Mexico, Baja California in particular, is very much a frontier, Mm -hmm. the Wild West. You can do, for the most part, whatever you want.
0: I've noticed.
1: Right? (laughs) Which is good and bad, you know? When it's good, it's amazing, and then when it kicks you, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. It's a lot more beneficial in terms of the logistics. It definitely complicates Uh everything, Uh but just how things flow Uh and operate, I mean... Another component of being an American that I think a lot of us take for granted is how smooth everything runs.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I mean, there's an office. to Get something signed if you need to get it signed. It's done in a timely manner. Uh-huh. And, you know, If you need a document, you can get it. If you need to contact someone, you can. There's people. Uh-huh. Whereas here, it's very much MacGyvering. Here, driving Agua Verde, the road might be gone. Uh-huh. You know, there might have been a big rainstorm a month ago that I, we didn't care about uh-huh. and nobody came to repair the road and the mountain. So there's just mm-hmm. a cliff. Uh-huh. Can't get there. Uh-huh.
0: Are you intending to bring your products back to the American audience? Um yes. ways other than them visiting you in Mexico? Or? So
1: that is the next hurdle is the best way to establish our presence in the market in the U.S whether that is going through exporting to the U.S. or whether it's finding a secondary manufacturer in the U.S. to replicate our product there so that we don't have to go through mm-hmm. the exportation tariffs and regulatory bodies there.
0: But you also plan on marketing as much or less in Mexico? To
1: buy? I would say as much.
0: As much. I would
1: say as much. Yeah. Ideally, I would like to have equal amount of presence in both countries.
0: Uh-huh. Last question. Who are three business people or businesses that inspire you?
1: Um, I mean, I would have to say Patagonia. That is for most environmental activists, I would say is the poster mark company. Uh-huh. I would say Industry of All Nations.
0: Mm, you know about Industry of All Nations? Of course. Okay, They, they are small actually...
1: World. Are you familiar with them as well? I
0: have some of their clothes. Okay. I met the founders a few months ago okay. uh, by chance at an event in SF. Okay. Actually,
1: a lot of the the concepts for Conservative Collective uh-huh. I referred to in of All Nations. Uh-huh. Just in terms of being able to establish a company that is still supporting local, small-scale enterprises and cooperations.
0: Mm-hmm. They're sharing their business model enough through their work to their totally. customers. Totally. You can learn from it and apply it in a totally separate business. And
1: that's exactly what I really respect about them. And what I'm trying to replicate in Conservative Collective is I I feel that one of their major promoting mechanisms, their marketing technique, is essentially stories about the communities. You know, you're buying this product because of this particular community in Argentina, in mm-hmm. India, or wherever it is that this product comes from. As opposed to the actual product itself, and it just mm-hmm. so happens that the product happens to be a great product.
2: Uh-huh.
1: I have two other companies that I have been inspired by in terms of their aesthetic and branding. Um, one of which is Le Labo.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm familiar
1: how scientific it is in terms of how they present themselves and how their products. They mix it in front of you when you buy it, so it's really honing in on the alchemy works kind of stuff. The other one is Koki Koki. It's a space that started in the Yucatan as a very boutique high-end hotel that also has its own product line of perfumes and soaps and all the ingredients are sourced locally and the space is really interesting and How it's designed. So once again, using that as an influence for Casa Conserva up in Aqua Verde, Uh very conceptual, very aesthetically engaging, interesting.
2: Uh
1: And for me, looking at it as a way to transcend science and education to get out into the mainstream marketplace of Uh beauty. I mean, we are so visually inclined this day and age with where we go based on how it looks Uh and how we can visualize it so to me that's a really inspiring brand to refer Uh to how to make science and conservation really beautiful hey thanks so much thank you wonderful No, thank you so much see how this
0: develops for you me too over the next (laughs) few years yeah thanks for tuning in to Contrepreneur this week I'd love to hear what you learned. Find me on Instagram at Contrapreneur and leave a comment telling me one thing you learned this week. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you gave us a positive review. You can also support the production and editing of our work by Venmoing us at Contrapreneur or going to Contrapreneurship.com slash donate. Even $1 will help me pay to have these edited so I can keep producing Contrapreneur. Next podcast will meet Kate Flynn, the inspiring founder and CEO of Sun & Swell, a snack food company deeply committed to zero-sugar-added, healthy, whole foods. There are a lot of snack food companies in the world, but Sun & Swell stands out among the masses because they are so seriously committed to pure ingredients that even the pickiest healthy eaters, <laughs> me, can eat their products. Kate shares how a New Year's Eve resolution turned her personal relationship to food around, how she went from specifically not wanting to have a business of her own to being a successful entrepreneur, what it's like running a super healthy snack food business in today's climate, and how she takes care of herself to stay inspired and on track with her work. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Kate. To make sure you don't miss it, go to entrepreneurship.com slash listen to hear when it becomes available. Talk with you again soon.